Good afternoon, John. Good afternoon, Jim. Well, it's a beautiful day and an opportunity again to delve into the promises regarding the return of Jesus Christ and their significance for us today. This is episode 21 and it's part two. We already covered several passages dealing with promises on regarding the return of Jesus Christ and their meaning or significance. And we want to uh, continue that discussion this afternoon. Are you ready for that, John? Well, uh, I'll have to fasten my seatbelt. There's a lot to cover that's potential here. Yes, there certainly is. People perhaps uh, do not realize that the uh, both the Old and the New Testaments are filled with promises regarding the, the second coming of Jesus Christ, uh, predictions of his return to earth. Last week, uh, I should say last time in our episode 20, we dealt with promises found in John chapter 14 in the Upper Room Discourse, in Matthew 24, uh, in the Thessalonian epistles, and so forth. And today we want to continue that discussion. I was encouraged to go back to the Old Testament by a remark that I read from one of my students who made a passing reference to the fact that the Antichrist is mentioned for the first time in Daniel 11. Well, that's not quite correct. <laughs> Having uh, completed the book, The Apocalypse is Coming, uh, which is the title of our podcast as well, I was uh, driven back to Daniel chapter 2 and 7, where the promises are first given about the Antichrist, and they are parallel to the promises given about the return of Jesus Christ, what we call the second coming of Jesus Christ, the one who will inaugurate God's reign on earth. And so in Daniel chapter 2, Daniel is giving and interpreting the vision or the dream of Nebuchadnezzar, the great image with its head and its breast and arms and legs and so forth. And after uh, the legs, on the bottom of two legs are ten toes. And we find out as we go into chapter 7 that the Antichrist is one of the uh, uh, future kings to arrive and to arise among ten kings. And so he's one of the ten toes. Uh, chapter 7 makes clear for us chapter 2. And it's in the wonderful chapter 7 that we're giving the promises of Jesus Christ in the second coming. And I want to read a couple of those verses. Uh, second, or, pardon me, Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. After, after Daniel is given the vision of the four beasts, on the fourth beast, he sees ten horns, and among those ten horns comes up one which is characterized by a very boastful person who will boast and take, make arrogant uh, statements against God himself. And Daniel, as he keeps looking, sees that uh, God's throne is set in heaven, uh, seated upon that throne of the Ancient of Days, only mentioned here in Daniel 7. Uh, he is surrounded by all those attendant uh, <coughs> angels and other beings in heaven, somewhat parallel to Revelation chapters 4 and 5. But then John, uh, pardon me, Daniel goes on to record, he says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not 
pass away, and his kingdom that shall not be destroyed. So this uh, great kingdom that the Son of Man is going to inaugurate and receive from the Ancient of Days uh, predicts the coming of Jesus Christ, as he promised in John 14, he will come again and come to reign on earth. And this fourth kingdom, uh, coming out of the uh, kingdoms of, uh, of, of a future ten-nation confederacy, uh, this kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and it will be inaugurated by Jesus Christ. The title Son of Man is that title which Jesus claims for himself. It's his most frequent title in the Gospels. And at his uh, trial, he finally answers the requests of his accusers and identifies who he is. And he says to the priests who are gathered there, uh, you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. They recognize this as a promise of Messiah. And they also recognize it as a promise of one who is also deity. So that uh, sealed uh, Jesus' doom, so to speak. Because they said we have no further need of uh, this person guilty, uh, guilty of blasphemy. Right. So the son of man, Jesus said, is uh, his identification, and he is predicted back here in the book of Daniel, chapter 7. But that's not all. In chapter 8, uh, we have the prediction of the rise of uh, Antiochus IV, who is a type of Antiochus to come and he also is described as one who will attack the prince of the host uh, and uh, attack God's people and uh, finally uh, be destroyed in the end and so uh, Jesus Christ is embedded in that chapter and then we also have uh, chapter 9 which is perhaps the most elaborate promises of the return of Christ and interestingly near the end of that chapter both the uh, uh, and the second coming of Jesus Christ is related. And I want to read a few verses from that. This, these are the 70 weeks of Daniel chapter uh, 9. 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin and to atone for iniquity, bring in everlasting righteousness to seal both vision and prophet and to anoint a most holy place. These are six things that are going to be accomplished by the Messiah that change world history. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. That's Jesus Christ. Then for 62 weeks, it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. That's a prediction, I want to say here by parentheses, of Jesus Christ will be cut off, referring to his crucifixion. And then it says, and the people of the prince who is to come, which is another prince, namely the Antichrist, shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. So these are the activities of the Antichrist. And then the verse concludes, and for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. That's the second half of the Great Tribulation. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate. 
for this is the desolation of abomination until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. So we have here the prediction of Jesus going to be cut off. And then uh, after the great tribulation, he will come again and accomplish the six great events that change world history and settle a history once and for all. Uh, the primary one being that he will bring in everlasting righteousness and peace. So in that beautiful chapter, John, uh, Daniel re refers to uh, the first and second coming of Christ. And then to wrap up Daniel, uh, he's uh, typified again in chapters 10 and 11 by uh, Antiochus Epiphanes, who arises in the second century BC. And the final message of Daniel is in chapter 12. And Daniel, um, summarizing uh, much of his earlier writing in the book of Daniel, asked two questions, or at least two questions are asked in this last chapter. He, he wants to know, first of all, how long shall it be till the end of these wonders? And he's given the answer that it will be for time, times, and half a time. Uh, in other words, for three and a half years. Daniel says, I don't understand. What will be the outcome of these things, he asked. Daniel is not told. He's told to go his way, that the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end, and that uh, at the very end, the abomination of desolation will be set up. There will be uh, 1,290 days and so forth. And so uh, at the very end of the book, Daniel is told to go his way and find his allotted place at the end of the day, at the end of the uh, end time. So uh, again, inherently, this passage is dealing with uh, messianic times, the times of uh, the return of Jesus Christ when he will assume a world rule. So basically that's an overview of what Daniel has to say about the return of Jesus Christ, uh, somewhat um, in concert with the revelation of the Antichrist who will become the world uh, ruler and uh, the, the, the great uh, evil person that the Antichrist, uh, pardon me, that Satan will inspire to try to destroy God's people in these final days. So we'll turn now to the New Testament. And what would you have to say with us this afternoon, John? Well, first of all, uh, this, this is borne out in some cases in terms of the Old Testament. But Jim, one of the first things uh, regarding the number uh, and variety of passages throughout the scriptures regarding the second coming is what is connected with them uh, before we get into particular verses, perhaps, I was doing a little study here, uh, reviewing all of these particular texts on about maybe five or six pages that I have here, and seeing in their immediate context what they're connected to. It's very interesting to see uh, under the Holy Spirit how the different writers of both the Old and the New Testaments make use of the subject of the second coming. Uh, and I'll, I'll just give you a couple of general um, categories here. Of course, there's this straight prophetic things about, about the details, uh, which we would find in, in Daniel 7. And of course, uh, when Jesus uh, rose into the heavens in the first chapter of Acts, uh, leaving the disciples behind uh, uh, angelic beings, you know, announced uh, there in uh, verse 11 of chapter 1 uh, that he would return in the same manner. Uh, there's a reference, I think, uh, uh, 
in a, in a prophetic sense in Hebrews chapter 9. The second coming is uh, stated in terms of the resurrection of, uh, of the saints. Uh, it's uh, <clears throat> it's uh, mentioned in terms of the restoration of Israel uh, and the comfort of Israel. Uh, that's both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Uh, the second coming is mentioned in direct connection uh, with the judgment of unbelievers and the accountability uh, of all people. Uh, that's both in the Old and the New Testaments. Uh, it's used in connection with uh, the hope of believers uh, for what is to come in his heavenly kingdom for them, uh, that which they've been uh, looking forward to uh, individually for years and years, but uh, collectively for generations. Uh, there's uh, the second coming, of course, must be uh, of necessity uh, mentioned in connection with the reign of Jesus Christ in his millennial kingdom. And then, of course, uh, it's mentioned in, in connection with the reward of the saints, you find that in a number of the parables. Uh, you find that in First Peter and uh, also in uh, Revelation uh, 22. There's uh, uh, a mention of the second coming uh, in terms of uh, anticipation is, is an exhortation to holiness and alertness and uh, to service. So it's, it's really quite, uh, quite impressive to see how the Holy Spirit has managed to use the subject of the second coming for any number, a, a wide variety of purposes uh, for the saints. Well, yes, I appreciate, John, that you've rehearsed those because all of those ideas are very important and uh, specific to uh, reason for what the second coming of Jesus Christ means. And uh, you touched upon the comfort for the saints, and that's a very important thing of particular interest to you and me and every other believer. Uh, and uh, I appreciate the fact you mentioned also uh, that uh, the return of Jesus Christ is associated with rewards. And uh, I'm thinking of 1 Corinthians 5 here in the, in the judgment seat of Christ. Uh, so thank you for reminding us all, of all those uh specific reason for why Jesus Christ uh, will come and must come again. You know, the history of the world <clears throat> is not finished, uh, but there will come an end to history. It's not going to be ongoing forever and ever, though there, there's no end or point to it. But uh, the second return of Jesus Christ proved that he is Lord of history, that the Father has uh, predetermined the times and the boundaries of all the nations and empires that will ever rise during Gentile era, eras. But then, as Jesus said, Jerusalem will be trodden down by Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. So the Gentiles are not going to be supreme in history, but they're going to come to their end. And uh, Daniel's prophecy of uh, uh, four world empires from Daniel time going forward to include Babylonia, Media, Persia, Greece, and Rome 
it's going to be followed then finally by a fifth kingdom. And, and that is when the Antichrist assumes rule and Jesus Christ intervenes. Other passages that I think of in regards to uh, uh, these uh, are, I want to point out, are, are located right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Uh, in, in Nazareth, he rises up in the synagogue to read from uh, the prophet Isaiah, chapter 61, verses 1 and 2. And Jesus quotes that verse and ends up uh, and talks about uh, his mission in the world to heal and to provide uh, 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 light in the darkness and such things. But he stops in the middle of uh, chapter 61, verse 2, with these words. Uh, where, where are you reading from, Jim? I, I'm in Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. Very good. And, and this is what Jesus quotes in Luke 4. So I'll read those two verses. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news, that's the gospel, to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And that's as far as Jesus read, re-rolled the scroll, handed, handed it to the attendant and sat down. But the second half of that verse goes on to say, and to proclaim the day of vengeance of our God. Well, that's the second coming of Christ. So in the first coming, first part of uh, 61, one and two, uh, refers to what Jesus did in his first coming, but the second coming is the day of vengeance. So embedded at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry is the promise of the Lord's return by what he does not say, but yet is in the text that must yet be fulfilled. Uh, you know, there are promises of the, the Lord's return for his people uh, and for the world. Um, I can think of uh, such texts as James 5 and, and, and uh, the book of Hebrews. Uh, you cited or referred to, to Jude 14 and 15. Why don't you tell us what that passage is about? Well, yeah, I, I'm, I'll, probably, I'll read 14 and 15, and then I'm going to read something uh, from uh, 2 Thessalonians, which, which also, uh, let me see here, Jude, right before Revelation. Last, it, last time I read it was in front of Revelation. Ah, yes, there it yeah. is. This is what Jude has to say in verses 14, 15, uh, after talking about uh, false teachers and, and the trouble that they cause. And verse 14, he says, and about these also Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied saying, behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way, and of all of the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So this is, frankly, uh, this, this is an uncomfortable word for many people in our generation, sad to say, but this is the retributive uh, justice uh, of the Lord Jesus being expressed. And it's very much uh, parallel to what uh, Paul has to say in Second uh, Thessalonians, uh, yep. beginning in the first chapter with verse six, for after all, 
It is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at. That's, I love that great word in, in Greek. It's a draw-dropping uh, astonishment to be marveled at among all who have believed for our testimony to you was believed. And uh, so it's very interesting uh, and encouraging to see that uh, the Holy Spirit writes the same thing about the same issues through many different writers. Well, you know, uh, that's a powerful, powerful passage, Second Thessalonians chapter 1. And then in chapter 2, Paul goes on and talks about the rise of the Antichrist and that we do not know that the day of the Lord has come until he first comes, the, day, the Antichrist, and the great rebellion takes place. I want to make one passing uh, reference to what you quoted from Jude 14 and 15, because the verse that began, begins that is translated uh, present tense, even though you rendered it past tense, as it were, because the Greek is an aorist, which we normally associate with past time. But here we have a prophetic aorist, and therefore the translations will render it as either present or future. It's an oddity, you might say, about uh, biblical Greek in the sense that the aorist tense, which is really not a past time tense, but a, an accomplished fact kind of tense. And we English people think of that usually as past time, therefore, but not from a biblical standpoint. God is going to do things in the future that are so certain of fulfillment that they can be spoken of as though they've already been accomplished. And that's one example here in Enoch, uh, pardon me, in, in Jude uh, verse 14, Enoch prophesied about them, see the Lord is coming. The Greek is really reading it, the Lord came with uh, thousands upon thousands, but it's not an event that's been accomplished yet, but it is so, it is so certain of fulfillment in the future that uh, it can be spoken of as already accomplished. So uh, it's a struggle for knowing just which way to go in English with that. Most translations help out the English reader to realize that this is still future to our time, or at least to the time of the writing of Jude, but right. has not yet been accomplished. My reading, was from, my reading was from the New American Standard, which, uh, which takes the aorist as a, as a past tense in that, in that kind of case, and probably is... Uh, as you have mentioned, uh, maybe perhaps in this case, a little bit less desirable of the translation in that particular verb case. Well, NASV wants to be literal more so than other translations. And so they've gone with our English past time, but the, AS, the, uh, uh, the ESV and uh, the NIV render it either as present or uh, future. In any case, isn't that interesting that uh, this great event, which is future yet to you and me today, is spoken of as so certain of fulfillment as having been already accomplished then uh, in, in, our, in our own future for us. 
in the time that remains, let's go to the book of Revelation, because of all the books of the Bible, this is the book most filled with prophecies about the return of Christ. The very title of the book, Apocalypse, means it's an unveiling or revealing of the end times. And John had given a special uh, uh, book, a special message here, as introduced in chapter one. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants what must soon take place. And that's the word take that you and I have talked about. Uh, he made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who testifies to everything he saw. That is the word of God and testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear it and take it to heart. What is written in it, because the time is near. The time is near. So that's the introduction to this significant book. Uh, we learned that uh, God desired to communicate it uh, to John, and he did so via uh, the Lord Jesus, who used an angel to reveal it to John. And it's all about and centered around the person of Jesus Christ and his return. And the last words of those verses I just read signify that the time is near. And goose, it's very near. Uh, and so this first chapter goes on to deal with uh, what I call the theme of the apocalypse, verse 7. Look, he's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. Uh, these are passages quoting, first of all, Daniel 7.13, which I referred to a little while ago. And then the other major passage is Ze Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, uh, recounting the fact that in the future people will mourn uh, when they see him whom they have pierced, referring especially to the Jewish people. So the whole theme of Revelation is the return of Jesus Christ, the great hope of believers and the assurance that uh, their suffering, their persecution is going to be vindicated uh, at the return of Jesus Christ. This first chapter has even additional things re revealing uh, the coming of Jesus Christ. Uh, but we'll move on from there into chapters two and three. John, these are the messages to the seven churches. And yes. Each one is stylized with certain elements. Uh, there's an address. There's an acknowledgement that Jesus Christ knows their present situation. And, so and one of these six or seven features is the promise of his coming. He says, uh, I will come to you in regards to the very first uh, church of Ephesus. And in all the other six, there's a reference coming, either immediately or referring again to the second coming. So and, I'm, and scanning Jim, down the page, I'm scanning yeah. down the page here and seeing it uh, mentioned again. Uh, I'm going to come to you quickly to the church at Pergamum. And on it goes even to uh, chapter three, dealing with the last three churches, the church at Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I, th I think it's important, you know, sometimes uh, we uh, tend in, in, in our studies and in our churches to uh, take those uh, seven letters to the churches in, in various ways. And somehow we, we almost isolate them uh, because of our attention to them specifically, we isolate them from their purpose in the 
in the book of Revelation uh, to alert the saints uh, to proper behavior uh, in anticipation of Christ's coming, his, uh, his uh, second coming. Well, you're right on with regards to, with regard to that observation. Uh, these are the, you might say, the practical everyday application of these prophetic messages. And as it was significant in the time when they were written, so they continue to be significant for local churches today around the world. Chapters five and uh, four and five of Revelation, the uh, heavenly scene in which John is shown what takes place and is taking place in heaven. And in chapter Jesus Christ is introduced as the lamb who is worthy to open the book of judgment, uh, the seven sealed book of judgment. Uh, and Jesus is described here as the one worthy because he was uh, slain as a lamb. That is, he died on the cross to provide salvation and deliverance for people who by faith come to him and receive forgiveness and eternal life. Uh, so Jesus Christ is introduced here and we go on from that chapter through the next uh, dozen or more chapters that unfold the judgments and it is Jesus Christ who is the agent of God on earth, uh, pardon me, on, in heaven on sealing the uh, uh, the judgments that are going to come during the great tribulation period. When we get to chapter uh, 16, we have come to uh, the final events of the series of judgments, the last uh, series called the Bulls of Wrath. And near the end of that, the seventh bowl, uh, it is poured out. And at the end of the chapter, verse 17, it says, uh, when the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying, it is done. This is the end of the judgments during the great tribulation. Uh, these words, it is done, remind us of what Jesus cried out at the end of his first coming from the cross. It is finished. It has been accomplished. His redemption has been uh, fulfilled. His redemption has been settled. He provided the sacrifice sufficient for the sins of every one of us, each of us individually, and for all of those uh, who will trust him throughout the world. But these words are now uh, uttered from uh, heaven and uh, signify that the time of final judgment has arrived. The words go on to say, there came flashes of lightning, rumbling, peals of thunder, and a severe earthquake. No earthquake like it has ever occurred since mankind has been on earth. So tremendous was the quake. In other words, this is what Jesus said in the sense that the great tribulation is, in is a time of unprecedented uh, judgment. Never before had there been a time like it. And when we pause to think upon the fact that the time of Noah was the previous great uh, judgment of the world, this is going to exceed that. And Daniel prophesied this, as well as uh, did the Lord Jesus in the Olivet Discourse. The final words of this chapter are that the great city split into three parts and the cities of the nations collapsed. God remembered Babylon the Great. Those words stand for the symbolic judgment of the nations and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. Every island fled away and the mountains could not be found. From the sky, huge hailstones, each weighing about 100 pounds, fell on people. And they cursed God on account of the plague of hail because the plague was so terrible. So those are the words describing the final acts of judgment. 
The next thing that happens, according to the book of Revelation, is chapter 19, the battle of Armageddon. Here we have Jesus Christ returning as the warrior. He came the first time as the one bringing and offering salvation and deliverance. Now he comes as the, reward, as the warrior from heaven. He comes up against the Antichrist and the armies of the Gentiles. And the outcome of this battle is not in doubt. The text here and in other passages such as Zechariah 14 and other uh, prophecies in the Old Testament make it very clear that God is uh, truly uh, sovereign and powerful and almighty. And uh, the nations are defeated here. The Antichrist and the false prophet, his companion, are seized and cast into the lake of fire alive where they remain forever and ever. So Jesus is here described as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. This is the final event marking his return in judgment. It's what he called later, or pardon me, earlier in the Gospel of Matthew in the Olivet Discourse, his return with power and glory, fulfilling Daniel 7, 13 and 14. So wrapping up our discussion of all the various promises and the important reason reasons, multiple reasons why the promise of the second coming is so important. Uh, we come to the very last words of this wonderful book, Revelation 22. And what do we find there, John? Well, in verse seven, uh, let me read verse six. And he said to me, these words are faithful and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets sent his angel to show to his bond servants the things which must shortly take place. Verse 7, Behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. And then down in verse 12, Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. And also in verse 20, He who testifies these, to these things says, Yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Yes, we, have, we might point out that the word quickly could also be translated soon. It depends on what the emphasis is in any particular context. And frankly, both ideas uh, fit here because from the perspective of the biblical reader, soon can mean uh, the very next event on the prophetic uh, outline of history, yep. which, is, uh, which is as certain and sure as God's promise. So that is not only uh, quickly, but also soon from a biblical perspective regarding time. It reminds us of what Peter says in 2 Peter 3, that a day with the Lord is as a thousand years and vice versa. It's not a matter of time or postponement or lapse of time, but rather certainty. And the next event for the, every single Christian around the world, not only here in America, but around the world during these trying times, is the return of Jesus Christ and the great uh, relief and relief that his return means for us all. So I recall uh, Paul's words at the end of 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 16, in which he says, Maranatha. He is citing Aramaic, departing from Greek, and the words Maranatha mean, O Lord, come. And I think of no better words than we might close this episode, John, with those very words. It is the heart desire of every believer, including you and me, that our Lord come, come quickly. 
Jim, I, 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 I can't help but tell you a quick story. There was a, a guy that I knew uh, who I who I had uh, who was instrumental in uh, getting me out here to Portland uh, to attend Western Seminary, and uh, he was uh, totally smitten with his his young wife and whatnot. He had a picture of her on his desk, but there was a label on that picture for all of the devotion and affection that he had for her. It was very interesting, the label that he put on her picture. And, and the label said only this, maybe today. And uh, it reminded him that however much uh, he was devoted and affectionate towards his wife, he had a greater devotion and affection toward the Lord Jesus who could come at any moment. So maybe today, Jim. Yes, maybe today. Maranatha, John. Maranatha. <laughs>